elderly boyfriend is going to be the name of my 90s throwback emo ska band. <laughs> and Therapeutic D will be their opening act. And... <laughs> Welcome to Like a Fish Needs a Starship, your bitterly feminist sci-fi podcast. This is Stephanie and Kat. Hello, hello. <laughs> You've been busy. Oh my god, it's taken over my soul. Um, <laughs> when I was a law clerk, all the I was like the career law clerk, so I was significantly older than the other law clerks who were like kids right out of law school. So they're like 24, 25, 26. And one of the girls was, I think she was probably 24. And she was like obsessed with TikTok. And she would constantly send me videos and constantly tell me I need to get on TikTok. And I've tried a couple of times and I was just like, I don't get it. Like, what am I looking at? And the thing is, it takes a second for the algorithm to understand what you're into and as soon as it does I mean and it does it within like 20 minutes of you like watching some videos and liking them or whatever it like can see inside my soul it just knows what I want to see like it's like would you like to see a man in a dinosaur suit doing a whap dance why yes I would I would (laughs) I so I had the very same experience that you did only far more recently. I had the app on my phone. Um, I tried to get into it. I was like, I don't understand this. I don't understand how to use it. I don't understand what I'm looking at. It's giving me shit. I'm not interested in at all. Um, And then when everyone was like, Oh, it's a Chinese spy plot. I was like, good reason as any to take it off my phone, you know, (laughs) goodbye. (laughs) So, but I will, I I will perhaps give it another shot, although I am trying to reduce my lounging on the couch, looking at my iPhone for hours time to a bare minimum. I'm telling, if that's your end goal, do not download TikTok. Just watch watch the videos I send you. I'm giving you a curated experience. So it's, it's good. (laughs) Well, so I'll say, too, I actually have a theory about TikTok being a giant boy. Yeah, I'm going to call bullshit on that because so what is really interesting about TikTok, unlike other forms of social media, is I think it's easier to convey ideas to people if they aren't written. And so Mm -hmm. if you're scrolling through these videos and you're, you know, belong to our political bent, it's really amazing the sort of stuff that you see. Like, there's a lot of comedy making fun of Trumpers. Um, And more importantly, there's a lot of videos that give you, like, a social basis for your frustration. So, like, so, and it's, like, the sort of videos and stuff that normally would make it onto mainstream news if, like, someone died or something, except it's, like, the more low-key stuff because it's just people posting it. So, for example, yesterday I was watching a bunch of videos when police were called out to a black family's home and literally, like, 
there was nothing happening. There wasn't a domestic. There wasn't a crime being committed. And this one lady got tased basically because she talked back to the police. She was like, this is my house. You don't have a warrant. Mm -hmm. You know, no, we didn't call you. You need to get out of here. Get, you know, like, get off my property. And he, like, tased her. She fell on the bushes. And then, like, there's mm. four police cars. And so the whole thing is being filmed and they're posting it on TikTok. So if you're, like, scrolling through and watching stuff, you're, A, getting, like, a first-person view into other forms of police brutality that don't end in murder. Um, mm -hmm. And then you also get a lot of people with like a political message. Like I can't tell you how many like really convincing wear a mask sort of stuff has come up. This one like little 16 year old girl was going to a person who was really into Trump, like going to their house every day. Their whole front yard is covered in Trump signs. So every day she would take chalk and paint in the street. Like, I mean, you know, public property, mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter. <laughs> <laughs> but that too ended with the police coming and like overexerting their authority and like she you know so um trump wants to get rid of it because it's a really effective tool for communicating leftist ideas to an entire generation of people that watch it all the time because oh, like because he's mad he's mad that the tiktok teens ruined his rally yes yes 100 percent like, so, I, I mean, I told you guys, like, uh, there was a TikTok video that popped up in my feed that was like, if you want to fuck with Trump's campaign, go to his website and um, order free signs, because it, mm -hmm. it costs a lot of money to print them and then mail them and whatever. So, and, like, do whatever you want with them after that. And it's like... Kids will do that. You know, and when I say kids, I mean, I, I don't really mean kids. I mean, or people in their late teens, early 20s, like... That's the sort of stuff that if you can effectively communicate to other people, you know, and you're not going to get like the boomer feedback that you'd get on Facebook. And there's like slightly less vanity in these videos than you would see on Instagram. But still on Instagram, you can't provide a lot of text with something. Right. You know, and tweets. I mean, you know how vicious mm -hmm. Twitter is. I mean, TikTok is v vicious, too. But I just feel like. Everything I've seen that's been like a political thing has been very well done and convincing and I think would be convincing to me if those were not my political views and maybe I didn't have any political views, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like kids tend to be apathetic. Again, I don't mean kids, but I mean like young people might be like, whatever, I don't like either party. The way that liberalism is portrayed on TikTok, I think would be very mm -hmm. something to be very easily consumed by a younger generation. And I think that's what Trump doesn't like. But at the same time, his favorite people, the Qs, have a huge presence on TikTok from, from what I understand. Yeah, but does he understand that? Or does he understand that a bunch of kids from TikTok and that listen to South Korean boy bands um, <laughs> <laughs> fucked with his rally? <laughs> So what is what is that South Korean boy? Is it called BTS? So I actually am really into Korean culture, but I don't follow the K-pop scene at all. But I think okay. it's but yeah, they like because I keep on seeing their name and I keep on thinking they're called BTK. And I'm like, that does not sound right. That's yeah. a killer. It might be BKS. I feel like we should just look this up. But yeah, no, the, the K-pop stands. It's yes. just. I mean, I'm into all of it. It's so wonderful. <laughs> but I it is. It's B it's BTS. Yeah. I basically supplanted the time that I would be spending watching television 
now I watch TikTok. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we cope with our quarantine in different ways. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. In other nudes, I am still obsessed with WAP and uh, still obsessed with Cardi. So TikTok's also adding to that. There's so many hilarious WAP videos. Oh, that Star Wars one you sent me was yeah. amazing. Well, so this whole like series of videos with what that involves WAP where this, I think he's from Guam, but like a choreographer created a like dance to WAP that's like not uh-huh. a party or the video or anything. It's just like his. And so then it becomes a challenge. And so everybody's doing it. And some people are doing it seriously. I mean, it's like a very provocative dance. And then some people are just fucking around so that's where i you know there one video was like a person dressed in a blow-up barney costume doing the lap dance uh, <laughs> and it was glorious i'll have to yeah so you know what okay okay <sighs> well shall we get into it we we are on the downward slide towards the end of the first season of star trek picard how are you feeling about it at this point in time steph I'm still, I'm so indifferent. Because, <laughs> you know, it's hard to be excited when you know what's going to happen. And I do think for our future forays, we should maybe not watch ahead, I feel like. I agree. I yeah. agree. But then we have to get on a more reliable podcasting schedule. Well, I mean, for future TV shows, we probably wouldn't do one that was coming out simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Just because there might not be enough new TV shows that involve right. science. Yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to play around and, and see what happens. But yeah, I mean, now, I, since you know what's going on and you know what happens, even though now I like only have a vague recollection of, of the chain of events, it kind of takes the mystery out of it. So mm-hmm. it takes the, mm-hmm. takes the hope away of like, because I think that's what was happening to us when we first started watching. We had so many hopes. And so when, <laughs> When the all whole dashed, dashed, right? All dashed. So yes. felt so much rage, and now it's like yes. I'm resigned to it. You know? Yeah. Well, let's battle through our resignation and uh, let's talk about Star Trek: Picard, season one, episode six, "The Impossible Box." So. This episode starts on an opening shot of a long, dark hallway with a window at the end. It's storming outside, very thunderstormy. Uh, not a fun hallway. It's like a sad, depressing hallway. It's it's not the hallway of WAP, sadly. <laughs> there, there are no whores in this house. So. Well, yeah. is there a bucket or a mop? <laughs> so... The last time that I watched a TV show episode that featured a bucket or a mop, it was to clean up the brains of the person who had just been executed. (laughs) So. What the hell TV show is that? The Americans. Ah, I need to start watching that again. Oh, that show is so good. So there, there are no whores in this house, but there is a little Soji, a precious little Soji, who's maybe looking, I don't know, 11 or 12. And we recognize her by the Pandora-type necklace that she's wearing. It's the one that has, like, two-thirds of a Venn diagram. Um, I don't know why, like, every time I see this necklace, I kind of hate on it internally. You would not wear it. Okay, so let me let me explain to you why I would wear it. It is, it is not my taste. Um... 
obviously back in the 90s and early 2000s we all wore silver jewelry only silver jewelry because we thought gold was tacky um, oh my god yes i did think that was that like a thing did <laughs> that everyone was, think no, that? that was totally a thing that was absolutely a thing so i do wear gold jewelry now um yeah, and i don't i don't wear a lot of silver it's not that i don't like it i just don't wear a lot of silver but the reason that i think i would wear that necklace is because like if I wanted to wear something to like show my love of Star Trek, I would want it to be like super secret handshake material. Go out and wear like a t-shirt with Captain Picard's face on it. I would wear this necklace that like only another fan would be able to spot. So yeah, I could see that. Yeah. It's like my version of peacocking, I guess you could say. I get, yeah, I get Subtle that. Subtle peacocking. I yeah, kind so of... that's why I would. It's just so ugly. Um, <laughs> if it came in gold with a more delicate chain, I would snap it up in a heartbeat. Same. I have that necklace. It's just long. Yeah. Um, and I don't. I don't like the chain. I do not like the chain. I will say that. I don't like anything about it. But I mean, I, I could see how it could become something I would wear. It would just have to be completely different. <laughs> <laughs> so so at one point in time, um, I was gifted by a significant other a two sets of earrings and one of the earrings was little star trek communicators and the other set of earrings was like mini enterprises and i'm like i'm not wearing these and he was so hurt he was like why why aren't you wearing these like you love star trek i got these for you and it's like i'm i never did really find a good it it was such a sweet gift you know but i i really never did way to be able to tell that person like it's just so obvious I I wouldn't wear anything that was that obvious yes exactly well so my take on it is actually like I I get it I because I also want to express my fandom in ways that are not super obvious because it's like we're in a professional world you want to be able to like let your freak flag fly but like in a professional way um the thing with this necklace I would not choose this as a way to show my fandom off because it I just it conflicts with my view of how jewelry should be worn like it's not subtle enough it is subtle enough in the sense of like you're not somebody's not going to look at it and be like you're into Star Trek mm-hmm. but it's not subtle enough as it goes for costume jewelry and I feel like if you're going to go all out with costume jewelry it has to be like of a jazzle kind of situation, you know, <laughs> like fine, put tassels on it, like whatever, if you're going to wear costume jewelry, it's just, it's too, it's just not delicate enough. I think okay. if you're going to wear right. serious jewelry, it needs to be delicate. I think. Well, I can, I can definitely see that it like really exists in this very awkward space between like truly delicate costume jewelry. And then just like full out Iris Apfel, New York city eccentric widow costume jewelry which which is where I plan on being when I'm 80 but not right now same same I did think it was cool that um the necklace that was actually worn on the show was designed by a legit jewelry designer who just happened to be a fan of Star Trek her entire life and they actually like knew this person and called her and was like do you want to design some jewelry for this for the show um I personally am am living my life waiting for that kind of call like for when you know Roddenberry Incorporated is like we need a litigator who practices fiduciary duty law stat 
for all those 24th <laughs> century Star Trek fan. Yes, for all those 24th century disputes over probate and trusts, even though there's no money. <laughs> I don't know. I'll say it again. Weinager keeps getting passed down from generation to generation. There's got to be a role for a lawyer somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Little Soji walks down the hallway. She sneaks into her dad's orchid lab, but we only see the back of his head because this is a dream. And it ends with Soji's dad calling her name. Um, okay, so we're going to get very much into my problems with these androids because, as I said, we're on, like, the downward slide toward the season finale. And the impression that I'm getting from these androids is like, they should not be able to pass for human. Um, the implication of this dream and, and you and I had different takes on this. My yeah. take on it, my take on it was the implication of this dream is that Soji cannot see her father's face because nobody programmed her to know what her father's face looks like. I guess if you didn't know what your dad's face looked like, that would be normal to you because that's how you always grew up. But like the first rule of going undercover is like you have to have a believable backstory. Right. And I felt like my theory was compounded by the fact that when we finally get to see Soji's room on the artifact, there's pictures of her in Dodge and there's pictures of her and her mom. There's no pictures of her and her dad. If you're getting into a relationship with a shitty Romulan spy, <laughs> she might ask you at one point in time, like, hey, I noticed that you had no pictures of your dad. Because like that's a normal thing that you would ask somebody as you're getting to know them, especially if you're heading in a in a romantic relationship um and and like what's the answer to that is the answer to that like does not compute zeep absorb you know <laughs> i i feel like they did this better in west did you watch westworld the first season of westworld yes okay awesome there's, there's a scene yeah the only awesome season there's a scene in the first episode of westworld where they're like telling tandy newton's character nah you're actually a robot and they give her, like, the iPad, and they're like, look, as you're talking, here's the word tree that selects for you the words that you're going to use. And she cannot comprehend that, and so she shuts down. She freezes, and she shuts down. <laughs> you know, whereas, like, you don't really see anything like that in, in this show with these androids, because they're dumb androids. We'll, we'll find out. I was saving this for next episode, but I'm just so mad. Like, we'll find out next episode that Betazoids can't read these androids. They have no emotions. They don't project emotions. And it's like, you fucking send Soji to an artifact crawling with scientists from all over the Federation? You didn't fucking think she'd run into a Betazoid or two? This is stupid. There's no long-term planning here. <laughs> well, so my take on that the scene with the dad um, is a little bit different. And so, well, okay. So let me start with at some point, Narek and Narissa have a disgusting like brother, sister, whatever scene right. where they're talking about. Uh, so just potential programming, like what it might look like. And it was when they were discussing her dreaming, like what would be the purpose of programming a dream function into an android and he said that he thought if i'm i i tried to look up the quote and i couldn't find it but like the gist of it basically is she essentially has a subconscious understanding 
of the fact that she is a robot. And so that is constantly bumping up against her, you know, program beliefs that she's a human. So she needs at uh, some point in time in her day-to-day existence to process that information and reconcile it so that the illusion of being a human can continue to exist. And so that's my take on this. Like she probably mm-hmm. is programmed with, uh, you know, what, whatever her dad is, what her dad looks like, but she also has a subconscious understanding that her real father is her creator. And so the sneaking into the room and not being able to see what her dad actually looks like is because it's not her human dad and it's not her inventor. It's something in between. Like, those two things ah, that need to okay. be reconciled, you know? Um, and then that would explain why what he's working on is her and, like, you know, all of that sort of stuff. But, yeah, so, I I mean, I'm, we might I might be giving the writers too much credit. No, here, you but... definitely are. But I, I like your theory. <laughs> <laughs> we we go after that, too, as some so generic snuggle time. Yeah. Um, Narek, who is the world's worst spy, although we'll talk about that later because we read an article where one of the comments to that article was like, well, he's a good spy because he got the information he was looking for. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, so Narek was asking Soji these like not so subtle questions about her dream. And we learn a very interesting tidbit about Romulans, that they all have two names, one for outsiders and one for the person that they give their heart to, because it's always a door behind a door with these fucking guys. So Soji looks over at a picture of her and Dodge as kids with their mom, again, giving somewhat of credence to my theory, like no pictures of dad. dad. Yeah, right. Um, we go to La Serena. By the way, I am trying very, very hard to break the habit of saying the La Serena because it's the the <laughs> Serena. <laughs> so on La Serena, the crew is discussing going to the artifact to find Soji. Picard recalls that his last visit to a Borg cube was not voluntary. And Gerardi unhelpfully recounts all of the things that happened to Picard when he was Borgified. She goes into basically the exposition speech for the two viewers of the show who've never seen Star Trek The Next Generation. They called him Lacutus. They injected him with nanoprobes. They grafted synthetic parts onto his body and assimilated him into their hive mind. Uh, Gerardi suggest that the cube has been cut off from the collective so maybe they're like chill borg now on the artifact and picard claps back that the borg do not change they metastasize which is a great line but it's also one that i had a whole retort to before i realized that this franchise's treatment of the borg has been less than consistent so i stopped wasting my time um (laughs) but Picard's emotional reaction to the Borg in the scene is, I think, consistent with what has historically been his extreme bitterness toward them. And there's always been kind of a cognitive dissonance with him, which which I imagine is one that he would have to throw up to process his trauma being the kind of person that he is 
which is, you know, I was a human who is assimilated by the Borg and I shouldn't be held responsible for my actions, but fuck the rest of them. <laughs> They're all different than me. You know, he was bitter as fuck over the Borg in First Contact and he's bitter AF here. In fact, in First Contact, there's this character who's, you still haven't seen it, have you? No. I need to, I know. Me too, it's good, it's good. So there's this character in First Contact, um, played by Alfre Woodard, who's supposed to, I guess, kind of be like the audience surrogate character. And she's trying to convince Picard to abandon ship to get away from the Borg. And he refuses. He's like, no, we're going to fight hand to hand if we have to. And she storms out of his ready room. She's like, all right, well, Captain Ahab has to go hunt his whale. And then Picard's like fuck it's a like a real oh shit moment for him because nothing cuts picard to the bone like a well-placed reference to 19th century century literature um (laughs) we all have our achilles heels back in the present day picard storms out and uh, elnor who's been sitting there the entire time contributing absolutely nothing he looks at jurati and he's like, you look like you've done some shit you'd like to forget. What's your deal? It's great. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to go around saying in budding now. Like, excuse yeah. me. Sorry for in budding. Picard is back in Hollow Winnaker, and he's looking pretty fucking terrified at the thought of having to run around a Borg cube again. Give me more of this. Give me Picard therapy hour. Give me, like, that episode of TNG, The Family, but, like, a full season of that, you know? Right. No, so like this Google. scene to me was very contrived only uh-huh. because it was such a short scene. If they had yes. like, you know, if this had been a, a larger plot line, especially given the subject matter of the season, mm-hmm. you know, oh, um, yeah. I think it would have been really compelling, you know, exactly. like him, him defeating his like, I mean, I guess they can't really do it because Data was his best friend. But like, I would imagine if I was turned into an android against my will, other androids would make me uncomfortable. Data was not Picard's best friend. Data was Jordy's best friend. Well, because I mean, <laughs> Jordy was a socially inept human being, so it makes sense that he would have an artificial human being for his best friend. Um, but anyway, so Picard Googles the artifact, hits the images button, and he gets an old picture of Hugh. Then he gets a new picture of Hugh. Then he gets a picture of himself as Lacutus, because, like, Google in the 24th century is somehow shittier than Google is today, and just, like, gives you a bunch of this is um, like, a- like an old style, like, dun, dun, dun. I know, yeah. but, but they do do this really cool shot, you know, through the holographic computer. So the image of Lakitus is superimposed over Picard sitting on the other side. It was very effective. Props for that. So He looked, I, I mean, he is kind of ageless, like, even <laughs> though he's an old man in this show, like, whatever. Like, he looks so young as Lakitus. How long ago was that? Is it 20 or 30 years? Uh, it would have been 1990. Oh, wow. 30. So 30 yeah. years. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he looked really, really young. Yeah, but... You have a question about Borg names. Yes. Okay. So, like, because I think this isn't the only episode where he sees a Borg and they're like, yo, look cutest. <laughs> <laughs> Like, and then obviously seven of nine is seven of uh-huh. nine. And the other, her like Borg baby brother, son, surrogate also had a name. Like, why does a hive mind need a name for its components? Okay. 
So and, and sorry, secondary question. Yeah. Why and also how? Like how do we come? Like Locutus is a really like specific name. I know. You know, like right. So this is, in my belief, this is a symptom of of the fact that when this episode, which is Best of Both Worlds, Part One and Two, that's the one where Picard is assimilated. The Borg were really not fleshed out as a concept at that point in time. We had only seen the the Borg once before, which was in a season two episode where Q was like, I want to join your crew. And Picard's like, fuck you, Q, we don't want you. And Q's like, you need me. And he flings them halfway across the galaxy and they encounter the Borg. And the Borg um, attack the ship. But there's no, like, communication with them. You don't really get any insight as to who they are, what their motivation is, except that the Federation afterwards, like, oh, shit, well, we better prepare for this. So Lacutus was actually really the only Borg to ever be given a quote-unquote name by the Borg. Um, We have seen other Borg have designations, like Seven of Nine. And her full designation, by the way, is Seven of Nine, tertiary adjunct of Unimatrix Zero One. So you're, you know, in a group of this arm of this subsection, or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, Icheb and those kids, those were their names from before they were Borg. I forget how they found them, but those were not Borg names. Um, The whole thing with Best of Both Worlds was the Borg were like, we're going to assimilate you and you're going to introduce us to humanity. And what's what's really interesting about it is that whole two-parter, which I rewatched really recently, it's my daughter's favorite Star Trek episode, it, it seems really torn between this idea of whether the Borg intended to assimilate humanity and like be the Borg that we know them to be today, or whether they just like intended for humanity to be their slave race, because they say things like, you know, you will adapt to service us. And then it's not even really until the second part that they drop the word assimilate. So it's like kind of unclear as to what their deal is. And, and I don't actually recall the first time that we actually see that the get like a full fleshed out picture of the Borg. It, it, it's got to be Voyager. So, so it, I might not be remembering this correctly. I don't think I've gotten to the part of Voyager where they run into the Borg. Um, but I think I remember you telling me at some point that the Borg came from Delta Quadrant. Yeah. Well, okay. that's like where their home. That's like where their home base is. Is the Delta right. Quadrant. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. you, what you're saying makes sense to me. Like if I were a hive mind. I would name my component parts like a series of numerical, alphanumeric mm-hmm. uh, designations to create a name, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was always like, why did they name Picard Lucidus? <laughs> yeah, and, and I think it's something that like they've they've kind of. It could be like some kind of retcon that they could do. I mean, I really just think the truth is they the Borg were new. They didn't know where the Borg were going to go at that point in time. In First Contact, um, when the Borg Queen first appears, and it's like the first introduction, the first concept of the Borg Queen, Picard all of a sudden starts like having these flashbacks to the Borg Queen being there when he was assimilated. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it's like the, the Borg Queen is um, like sexy in a way that she shouldn't be. And it's kind of implied that she had like a sex thing for Picard. 
Um, yeah, it's real. I don't know. It's, it's totally weird. But let's talk about something um, that's not as gross. Let's talk about drunk shirtless soccer playing Rios. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have mixed feelings about this scene too. But go go ahead, describe it, and then I'll so, I'll go into my tirade. I mean, I know that you felt it was contrived. I mean, like everything in the show is contrived. Right. Um, but, you know, Gerardi comes out and she sees Rios and she's like, why is space? You know, it's cold and empty, just like my heart. My heart is a hole that cannot be filled. I have another hole that can be filled. Would you like to fill it with your D? <laughs> and I did not mind the scene. I liked seeing a woman, like, take charge of her sexuality um, and not being like coy and doing some dumb little mating dance. She's like, you know, I would like to use sex as therapy now, please. Um, it's two consenting adults fully aware that they're about to bone to ease their mutual pain and deadness inside. Um, Rios actually displays his softer touch here, asking Gerardi how she feels and if she wants to talk. And I was like, mm, porn for women, more of that, please. No. So. <laughs> Okay, so, all right, here's my take on this. First of all, Rios didn't need, we didn't need to see the, like, softer side of Rios, because why? You know, like, clearly she's going to him and being like, hey, I need some D therapy, and honestly, I think it would have been more compelling if we stuck to, like, the Rios who's going to pour some alcohol into, like, a gaping wound, you know, like, and be like, all right, you know, sure, let's do, do this. pour alcohol directly into your wop. <laughs> Don't think that would go well. Too much sugar, bacterial infections. Then Shapiro's wife will be right. <laughs> Other than that, I mean, like, I totally get it. Draw. I think she's like hollow, hopeless, lonely. It's like, yeah. girl, yeah, same. Yeah. But again, as and so like in with the it being contrived, like I don't think the character that we've been seeing Rios would react the way that this Rios in this scene reacts. Like I don't think he would be like, ooh, please tell me about your feelings, even though I just met you and like you're kind of weird, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but also for her, you know, like I could understand needing D therapy when you're dealing with like the emotional fallout of a bad breakup, but like not from murdering your elderly boyfriend because of a secret that blew your mind that very <laughs> soon will no longer be blowing your mind. You know, like that's not the D therapy. That's like, you need to sit in your shower and sob cry. <laughs> so first, um, well, you know, okay. So first they don't, I think have like real showers in the 24th century. They have <laughs> sonic showers. And I mean, I've never taken a sonic shower, so I can't vouch for the experience, but there's just something about when you're depressed, sitting in a ball and having like actual water wash over you, like you're in a thunderstorm alone with your emotions. I I, I guess sound could accomplish that same task, but I'm, I'm skeptical. Um, Second, elderly boyfriend is going to be the name of my nineties throwback emo ska band. (laughs) And therapeutic D will be their opening act. (laughs) And (laughs) third, we crave that which we do not have. And so for me, the idea of a man who is genuinely interested in my feelings is really nice. 
Oh man, I really, yeah. Okay, that's a, that's probably our problem because I yeah. really like a man who's not interested in my feelings <laughs> and is just willing to just willing to bone. <laughs> yes, like. <laughs> Like, I would like to just go to somebody and be like, hey, listen, I'm feeling hollow, hopeless, lonely. I don't need to explain it to you, but can we, like, fill the void? (laughs) (laughs) See, I think that my pickup line would be, hey, I don't think I've ever been in a sexually satisfying relationship. Can you show me what I should be expecting a good lover to do? Meanwhile, I'm like, I need an outward expression of how much I hate myself. So can you choke me a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> like, can you I be a, can you be a little bit violent? <laughs> <laughs> like, can you just, I don't know, like, throw, throw me around? Like, a, just a little bit. Like... <laughs> some more about sex in this show and it's funny I, I was reading I should have sent it to you but it was like in a weird time and I don't forget I forget where the article was but it was like you know characters on Star Trek have sex but do they fuck you know um so I, I want to talk about you do based on your explanation of data having like that did not sound like porn for women yeah but they were all under the influence of some virus that doesn't count um what about salamander sex mm, purely procreative but that was fucking well yeah <laughs> that's where she's like wink wink yeah. <laughs> so for sex on this show i i did enjoy the depiction of gerardi as being an adult woman capable of something going for something that she wanted with rios um Soji is clearly having sex with Narek, although it's A, gross, B, definitely calls into question her android analytical skills, and C, do androids get WAP? Um, I think it depends on who is constructing the android. You know, like Maddox seems to have gotten everything else wrong, so maybe he's getting it wrong. I don't know. Maybe Maddox is like Ben Shapiro and doesn't have any real world experience with a WAP. So he like doesn't even know that such a thing exists. (laughs) (laughs) This is why this is why you have to go back and watch Measure of a Man, because Maddox in that episode, like totally gives off major incel vibes. So (laughs) that that definitely makes sense. Um. But there is, to me, a huge difference on the show between having sex and being sexual. So yes. Soji has sex, Gerardi has sex, but there's no nothing overtly sexual about them. And conversely, they're not portrayed as being like nun-like or reserved. You know, they're just women who exist and sex exists on the spectrum of being a woman. Nerissa, on the other hand, and a yet unmet character who for now shall remain nameless, exude 
very cheap over the top sexuality, which is of course a code and a stand in for their evilness. So women can have sex, but sex appeal, or at least the male writers idea of sex appeal is a code for their malevolence, which is such a tired trope. Well, okay. So, so many layers for this. (laughs) So like really interesting thought and you're right. The characters on the show that are overtly sexual are evil. Right. Um, But then if you're like a wounded bird and like very vulnerable, like, it's almost like the sex you're having is a stand-in for your vulnerability. Like yeah, you, o- like opening up to some man and being like, I feel some kind of way and like, I'm going to u- use you. Like the whole, all of it seems very male gazy. You know what I mean? Like, so women who are like sexy are scary. Mm-hmm. And then women who are like, Oh my God. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know like I'm really struggling you know like those are the women that are getting the um d therapy you know so I I mean yeah I wonder I don't think I wonder how many female writers are on the writing team for this show because I do think that that's a very like incelly way to think about sexual dynamics you know, not saying that the writers on this show are that, but, you know, like the girl next door giving attention to the nice guy or the guy who's going to save her versus like an overtly sexual woman who's using her sexual wiles. You know what I mean? So there are some women writers on this on this team. It's interesting. I, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's like, yes, there's sexism and then there's also just laziness, you know, and I mean, tropes are tropes because they're shortcuts. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Um, I can't tell you, though, this method of, like, showing vulnerability as a way to, like, manipulate some dude into giving you D therapy is not, not real world functional. <laughs> no, no. Speaking of Nerissa being, like, sexually evil... The, the showrunner of this show, Michael Chabon, he actually offered some commentary on Romulan sexuality. And he stated, and this must be something that he made up because we, we don't see this in Next Generation. He stated that like the rest of Romulan society, what lies at the core of a Romulan sexual relationship is secrecy. And that a Romulan sexual relationship is an opportunity to create a conspiracy and polyamorous relationships which are less concerned with gender differences than with power differences are not uncommon. And interestingly enough, I I went back and I read the quote. It's not, he wasn't responding to a question about Nerissa and Narek. He was responding to a question about Elnor and whether or not we'll ever see Elnor explore his sexuality, which, I mean, Elnor was raised in a sect of, Romulan society that's like anti-Romulan so right that Uh, hmm, yeah well so that whole statement is very confusing to me um what does any of that even mean (laughs) I mean to me it's like a way to justify the fact that you have weird incesty characters you know um that you know 
I suppose one could make an argument that incest might not be a concern in certain societies in the 24th century because there's probably a lot that you can do to prevent a baby coming out of an incestuous relationship. And if Romulan sex is and sexual relationships are all about power dynamics, well, you already have really interesting power dynamics with older versus younger siblings. So I suppose that's a way to try to realign the power dynamic or expand on the power dynamic i don't know it's fucking gross i don't even know why i'm trying to analyze this it's so gross it's It's lazy writing it's just like let's put her in a black cat suit and wiggle her hips and make her try to hit on her brother and now we'll know she's evil so yeah i mean i will say my um tolerance for incest has changed significantly because of game of thrones like (laughs) but um yeah, I I guess if that's what they're going to go with, I would like to see this idea. If they've put that much thought into this show to give Romulan society a view of, like, sexuality, which I don't know if I believe that, but, like, whatever, um, then I would like to see this explored because we get – we see none of that portrayed right. anywhere, you know, right. so. And Narek's not into it. Narek's, like, always brushing her away, you know, and he's somebody who's like real into Romulan secrecy. So, I mean, if that were really true, wouldn't we see the two of them kind of engaging in this like little sexual tit for tat power dynamic? But he's always like, ew, gross. And the way I've always read it is it's meant to convey that Nerissa is more evil than Narek in the end. Yes. Okay. So I do agree with that. And also, I think if like this that brother sister sexual dynamic happens a lot in anime as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it would have been much more effective if both Narek and Narissa were playing into it. Because right. when it's when it's when it's successful in anime or whatever, typically it's something like that. And usually I don't know if they're necessarily actually brother and sister, but there is like that sort of mm-hmm. uh, relationship going okay. on. But um I think if Narek had been doing it back to her it would also give him more credibility as a non-inept spy. Right. Right. Because like if the whole point is you behaving in a way that can manipulate the other person, but, Mm -hmm. and you're right, it is all Nerissa being like creepy sexual and him being like, no, please stop sister. You know? Yes, exactly. Um, But yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, we're back on the artifact. Nerissa is playing with Narek's box, which makes him mad. Nerissa says she doesn't understand why Narek takes his time with the box because Nerissa just prefers to smash that box. This is a sex <laughs> metaphor, I think. Um, <laughs> like, I know it's supposed to be a metaphor for how Narek is getting information out of Soji versus Nerissa would be like, I just strip the bitch down to her wires and torture the information out of her. But I, I just think it's funny that their, their metaphor is a box. Um. <laughs> we are getting a lot of Narek in this episode. I feel like we're, we're paying for no Narek in the we last are, episode. We are. I know. Narek is like, why does the Android dream of electric sleep? Nerissa's <laughs> like, you want to smash that robot box. Narek says, no, Soji dreams because that's where she processes the fact that she's not human, like we mentioned yeah, before. Yeah, like we're talking about It's very Freudian. Um, as a plot device, I'm totally on board with it. I, th- I think it's one of the better plot devices. Um, back on La Serena, our crew is wondering how the hell they're going to get clearance to get on the artifact because you cannot just walk on. 
Picard suggests that he get Federation diplomatic credentials as an envoy to the Borg Reclamation Project, which maintains its independence from the Romulans by treaty. And to accomplish this, they drag a very drunk, very high Raffi out of her room to place a call to a Starfleet captain who happens to be either an old friend or a girlfriend. Um, by the way, the Starfleet communication system is called ComNet. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> like, is that the fucking best they could do? Well, they were spending all their time trying to conceptualize Romulan sexuality. <laughs> They, they didn't have time to come up with a cool name for the communications yeah, network. Not. Um, <laughs> Raffi totally has to burn her bridges with this lady to get what she wants. And it's clearly something that's very painful for her. And it's made all the worse by Picard's totally insensitive clapping when yeah, she what, gets the job done. What the fuck? It's like, <laughs> Picard, read the room, bro. <laughs> She's like, really impressed. He's like, in the back. Yeah. Although... Like, maybe that's consistent with, because I think what we're getting, at least, I don't know if it's consistent through uh, TNG to Picard, but in Picard, what we're getting is that he's kind of not that great at human interaction. Yeah, that's and, very consistent with him. Yeah. Yeah, like, and he, like, lacks emotional intelligence, so it would make sense that he's clapping when she's, like, obviously extremely upset about what she just did, like, on his behalf. Um, but then I guess that would also be, so, okay, question. Uh-huh. Because we keep getting discussion about what it means to be fully human after you've been Borgified. But he was like that before, right? So it's yeah. not as, it's not as though his lacking in emotional intelligence is part of what he's trying to regain of correct. his humanity that was lost. Okay. That's correct. Yes. Okay. Uh, Ruffy and her bottle head back to bed. <laughs> She's done. And Eleanor looks at Gerardi and Rios and he's like, you two are acting weird. Did you guys bone? <laughs> I love that kid. I really do. <laughs> he's great. Aww. Uh, we go to the artifact. Soji is telling Narek that she meant to ask her mom about her weird dreams. Why did she never call her dad? <laughs> You never talk to your dad? Never. She doesn't have a dad AI cat. No, I know. (laughs) So, so, so she's like, yeah, I want to talk to my mom about my weird dreams, but I fell asleep while I was talking to her. And Narek tells Soji that he has seen the comm logs and that every single call that Soji places to her mother lasts exactly 70 seconds. Again, these are shoddily shitty fucking constructed androids. I mean, Maddox couldn't randomize that shit. Even Data's blinking was made to appear random. It's governed by something called a Fourier series, which is a mathematical formula. I wanted so bad to explain it to you, Stephanie, and to impress you with my knowledge. I I googled Fourier series for dummies. Every time I read something about it, I felt stupider. I don't have any mathematician friends, I, I but it did not help. Um, but I mean, if they can make Data's blinking random, can't they make Soji's phone call times with her mom AI random? Hey, I mean, and it's just, it's so many things. It is. And I will tell you what, I am 100% sure that they didn't do this on purpose, but this is consistent with Maddox's general arrogance and douchiness as presented in The Next Generation. He definitely came off as the kind of guy 
who would cut corners and produce shitty outcomes, like just to get his name in lights, you know, right, just so he could right. say, I'm the next Noonie and Soon. Um, so it does kind of make sense that he would like really haphazardly construct these androids. Although, as we'll see later on, it's like we don't even know how much of a hand he had in constructing these androids. So, That's which is true. like my other gripe. Um, anyway, Soji gets told this information about her phone calls with her mom, and she's like, what? So, it's also totally normal to have your boyfriend tell you this sort of stuff. I know. So I guess Narek's goal here is like to induce more of that cognitive dissonance to get Soji to dream more stupid dreams. But as we see later, he uh, he miscalculated. Soji calls her mom and she immediately starts feeling tired. Now, here's a question. Maddox, in an earlier episode, referred to an embedded mom AI program. So we have established that mom is not real. Mom's a computer program. But... Narek's making reference to the comm logs. So if the mom AI is embedded within Soji, who the fuck is she calling? Where the fuck is she calling? She's Where calling. Where the fuck is she calling? Yeah. Yeah, she's calling somewhere because there's an outgoing transmission. I mean, maybe she's calling. Maybe there's like the mom AI in her, and then there's also like another mom AI on some server on Earth somewhere. It just, I don't know. Am I overthinking this? I just. No, you're not overthinking it. I doubt anybody put any actual thought into this. But, I mean, I, I could probably come up with an explanation for yeah. it. But it's just, it's silly. You know, they shouldn't have... I guess if her background story is that her parents are on some planet that she used to be on or something, maybe it's, like, some number that she's calling on that planet that it bounces back to her for... Maybe. But, like, who fucking knows? I don't know. <sighs> so many questions. Um, Soji stabs herself in the hand to try to keep from falling asleep. It does not work. And when she wakes up, she frantically digs out like all these old photos and a journal and a stuffed animal. And she scans them all with some fancy doohickey. Surprise! Nothing is older than 37 months. Um, I did wonder, like, what is this scanner? You know, is it only programmed or is its only function to tell you the age of what's scanned? Or does it have, like, other functions? Like, maybe it tells you what's the composition of this item, you know, and the age was the one that caught Soji's eye. Um, and interesting, she does not think to scan herself. Cat, why would you scan <laughs> yourself when you can scan your teddy bear and your slam book? Oh my god, a slam book. There's something I haven't thought about in like a thousand years. <laughs> um, do we think that Maddox made that notebook? Do, do, we, <laughs> I know, I was like, do we think that like Maddox was sitting there coming up with journal entries for a teenage girl? This girl is the nastiest skank bitch I've ever met. Do not trust her. She is a fugly slut. Do you have any of that stuff from being a teenager? I don't. I do. You do? Oh, okay. Uh, I was like, why I have gonna... like, I have like an entire Tupperware filled with my old diaries. Oh my goodness. <laughs> See, I want to forget all of my teenage angst, which oddly enough, I'm still experiencing. So I threw out all that stuff. Cause you, you know, you read it and you're like, oh, this is so bad. I'm having like secondhand embarrassment for myself. I, <laughs> yes, I have had those experiences reading some of that stuff back. No, I kept my teen diaries for one reason and one reason only. It was in the hopes that I would one day have a 
girl that when she was a teenager going through her angst and was like, nobody in the world has ever been through this before. I'd be like, read this bitch. <laughs> been there, done that, you know? It's so funny. Um, it's so funny. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, I was like, this girl is like a med student scientist who's conducting research like is she gonna bring her slam book with her to you know what I mean like if you keep that stuff like okay cool I guess I still have my yearbooks from back then and like a book where I would print out poetry and like copy like paste it into the book like I still have that stuff but I'm not taking that with me to my internship yeah I I feel the same way I guess the only thing that I can think of is like in the 24th century, you know, people don't really have, like, homes the way that maybe we have homes. Like, especially if your parents are scientists, you might constantly be moving from location to location. So there's no, like, house that you would leave that stuff in. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just, I was like, come on. But I'm really, like, amused now by this by this idea of Maddox sitting there trying to come up with like a <laughs> journal entries. Um, my oh, 10 year old journal entries, by the way, it, it, it's a lot of Will Wheaton. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I've, I've always had like some unrequited love. So like if those things still existed, it would be like whatever boy I had a crush on for that year. And like all my angst and <laughs> The last time I went through one of my middle school diaries, it was, like, all about some boy. Number one, I have no recollection of who this person is. And and number two, I'm pretty sure that I didn't even really know him at the time. I just, like, was trying to be cool and thought, like, he was the type of boy I was supposed to like. (laughs) Um, Anyway, yeah, I, I would imagine that if Maddox kept a journal, the entries would be, like, less girl power and more like Elliot Rogers' manifesto. That's that's kind of the impression that I get. Picard beams onto the artifact, which, despite its disconnectedness from the collective, is very much alive as a cube with its shifting walls and catwalks and whatnot. Picard is in a full-on PTSD attack when some ex-Borgs grab him. He thinks, oh, no, I'm going to be assimilated again. Ah! But no, these are like, <laughs> these are the chill Borg. These are the cool Borg. Um, anyway, here's Hugh, smiles and hugs. It's about time that something made Picard happy. So we then get like literally 15 seconds of the most interesting fucking discussion that will ever take place on the show. They're talking about why Hugh chose to live on a Borg cube. And Hugh says, well, at least as a citizen of the Federation, I can leave at any time. So Hugh is an ex-Borg who was presumably human, although we do not know that for sure. So why does Hugh, who is an ex-Borg, have Federation citizenship while other ex-Borgs, many of whom presumably were Federation citizens when they were assimilated, do not. Now, like, to an extent, this makes sense. It would make sense that once you're assimilated, you would lose your Federation citizenship, because I assume there's, like, rules and stuff about the Federation going to war with its own citizens. But if you're, quote-unquote, reclaimed from the collective or otherwise reinstated to your pre-assimilated state, or as closely as possible, 
how do you get your citizenship back? Can you get your citizenship back? Do you have to reach some threshold of individuality to get your citizenship back? How does it measured? Who measures it? Like, I want to know all the answers to these questions. Yeah. So what exactly happened in the Hugh episode? Because obviously he didn't become a part of the cast. So like what happened to him after? So in the original Hugh episode, um, he makes the decision to rejoin his little mini cube that crashed because the Borg are like never going to stop looking for him. And he realizes that he's putting the Enterprise in danger by staying on the ship. He comes back in another episode. Um, It's this episode where Lore is like... Lore. (laughs) I know. Thor is like trying to form his own Borg collective and Hugh is there and the way that Hugh explains it is like my individuality came back and infected the Borg and we started all going crazy which never really made sense to me because the Borg assimilate individuals all the time so why would um and like they broke off and Lore found them and he was trying to help them and of course he was basically you know going like you know, full Mengele on these Borg. Um, And then after that, Hugh kind of like goes off with that group of Borg and he's like, I guess we'll make our own way. And you you never really know what happened to them until now. Um, So, so that's that. But like more, more of that, less stupid Romulan incidents, more of like, how does a Borg get back into the Federation? Yeah. yeah, Hugh has clearly had better therapy than Picard because he is fairly <laughs> fairly comfortable on the cube. Picard tells Hugh that he's looking for a human woman from Earth named Soji. And Hugh's like, yeah, I know her. Uh, is she in danger? Because she is being investigated by this Romulan spy who's really bad at his job. I mean, the exact quote is a very dashing Romulan spy. And it's like, ugh, as if. hair swoop that makes him dashing maybe that's Hugh's thing I don't know but you know to me it's like yeah okay I guess he finally gets the information from Soji that he was wanting to get that that makes him a good tactician that makes him a good interrogator it does not make him a good spy the first rule of being a spy is nobody should know you're a spy right and if the guy is like it might be the only rule of being a spy (laughs) (laughs) it may be hugh shows picard a bunch of borg who are being unassimilated and he makes a reference to the reclamation process as a trauma which is really interesting because we've really only seen two major assimilation reversals in Star Trek. You really didn't see them for those Borg kids. So the ones that you did see were Picard, whose process was presumably fairly easy because he wasn't a Borg for that long. So presumably like the implants weren't very deep rooted into him. And Seven of Nine, whose unassimilation was shown to be quite difficult from an emotional perspective. Right. Um, But her physical assimilation, although it was clearly somewhat more difficult, she was left with certain implants that could not be removed. Um, It mostly happened off screen and it was like, ah, you're a hot lady now, you know, deal with that. So you, you did get a lot of mental trauma with seven with, you know, an explanation of her being cut off from the collective, but after that, really not so much. So 
in this scene, Picard, like, very suddenly comes to the realization after 30 years that, like, oh, the Borg are victims, not monsters. And it's like, yeah, just like you. <laughs> okay, so more questions about this. Uh-huh. And there might there might not be answers, because I, I feel like every time I ask you a Borg question, it's like, well, they didn't flesh it out. But <laughs> so, like, why... I get why Picard felt victimized by the Borg. Um, And I can definitely understand if you're just like minding your business and then like a hive mind shows up like and assimilates you that you might be better about that. But surely there are people that didn't mind their assimilation, like enjoy, you know, because I think you mentioned once that seven of nine was like, um, I kind of like being a Borg. Um, So it it wasn't that she liked being a Borg, but it was like it was all she knew. You know, she was assimilated when she was five. She was rapidly aged in a Borg maturation chamber. And and that that was her life, you know. And then all of a sudden she's unassimilated. And this was like a recurring theme in Voyager. All of a sudden she's unassimilated. And they're like, you're a human now. Be like this. And she's like, no, I don't want to. She also was like, you're trying to force me to be a certain way and not allowing me to find my own path. And there are aspects of my time with the Borg that I can use and take value from. Right. You know? Um, so I guess it, they, so they don't, aside from the fact that we know that their home world is on Del, in Delta Quadrant and uh-huh. we know that there's a queen, do we know anything else? Like, it, were they like a technology that was created by a civilization and then like the AI took over the people or, you know, like. We really do not know. And and that's why I was so disappointed when the secret that would blow your mind turned out to have absolutely yeah. nothing to do with the origin of the Borg. I was really looking forward to that. I mean, and like, just... what a missed opportunity. There's so much cool shit that it could be. No. Now, I don't know if there's like any books out there, anything like that, that are pretending to be, you know, that are canon, that that purport to give an explanation of the origins of the Borg. That's something I would be interested in looking into. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So Hugh notes that the XBs are still enslaved in a way. They may not be enslaved to the collective anymore, but they're not free to move around. They're confined to a cube that's owned and operated by the Romulans. He mentions that he would like to see Picard advocating for a free Borg. Yeah, me too. Me too. I want (laughs) more political intrigue. I want more Picard speeches about the nature of sentience. This is what I want from my show. Definitely. Uh, Soji has called Narek to her rescue. You know what? I think this is a good place for us to discuss that article. Okay. Okay, so tell 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 our tell our viewer or viewers <laughs> or listener or listener our single listener our single listener yes what the article was and and what your thoughts about her. Okay, so I when I was looking for a quote that Narek said, I stumbled upon in the Google um, an article called Star Trek's Narek: How Picard Did the Bad Boyfriend Trope Right, and it's by um, a writer named Megan Cruz. Uh, the website, I think, was Den of Geek. Um, okay. But anyway, if you Google Narek, it's like one of the first articles that comes up. And like, I just so fundamentally disagree with so much of what this article says. I mean, I I respect the point of view of the person writing it because she does point to 
scenes and quotes that these characters use that support her viewpoint, but it's just completely the opposite of, of what both you and I interpreted from the show. And her thesis is kind of that, um, I mean, she's, she's saying this without saying it, but she's comparing Narek to like Kylo Ren and uh, Anakin Skywalker, right? Mm-hmm. Like, both those dudes were toxic boyfriends and both of them were evil and could not be redeemed no matter what they did, but we're going to try to redeem them anyway. And you kind of, the fact that they both had these like toxic relationships with their female counterpart, um, you're supposed to kind of like overlook that because of their personal struggle and their ultimate redemption arc. Right. Even though the things that they did were like terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, so what she's saying is Narek is a bad boyfriend. He's, you know, an asshole. He's using Soji. He's got like bad motivations and everything, but he never gets redeemed, which is the right way. You know, like the story is about Soji, not about Narek. So we don't need to understand a lot of his psychology for mm-hmm. us to understand why she takes the steps that she takes. And then also he doesn't get a redemption at the end of season one. Um, so first, I think the article makes a lot of assumptions, Uh, you know, a a large part of it is assuming that he's not going to get a redemption arc. And I think that that was one of our predictions in episode one or two of the pod where we're like, okay, obviously this dude's going to get like the shitty guy's going to get a redemption arc. Mm -hmm. Um, and I still think he's going to, you know, because they flirted with the idea of a redemption arc and, you know, like when he... I don't know. He did some shit in episode nine or something that was like sort of redemption-y. Right. Um, But anyway, I think he is going to get that in season two. And I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, the the relationship, the romantic relationship gets revisited also. Um, I think the only thing that was effective about this, and she is correct about it, they have a romance, I guess, and, like, she, Soji, in the end, like, doesn't give a fuck that the relationship fell apart, and that seems true to me, given what happened, you know, yes. if it had been, if it had been, like, oh, my God, but I love him forever, he was my first true love, like, that would be stupid, because literally nothing, like, you guys wooing down a hallway in your socks like it's love eternal you know mm-hmm. nothing mm-hmm. happened to create that kind of bond between the two of them so I'm glad they didn't go that route you know she's just kind of like right. god you're, you're pathetic get out of my face you know which I, is right. how you should react to somebody that you've known for like two minutes who's shitty to you right and the other thing uh, the other thing I disagree with is she talks about the relationship like it's really complex and I don't think it is And then I think it's actually a very, it's a romance that is not satisfying. It's very on the surface and there's no complexity to it. What she is describing in the article, I think a show that did accomplish that, you know, like a relationship that is is ambiguous to the extent that it is complex would be in Killing Eve, both between, yeah, both between Eve and Villanelle who like are fucking horrible to each other and yet like they keep coming back to each other and then also with carolyn and constantine Mm. um especially if you've seen the most recent season so you know that's what she's describing i don't think picard accomplished that and then the last thing that is just like fundamentally disagree with is um 
you know, she she referred to it as like a very satisfying romance, which like respectfully disagree. <laughs> like seeing them together, the the two actors, they're both good actors, both of them, but there's no chemistry between them. It's like right. the scenes where they're romancing each other are fucking revolting. Um and you know, and, and so her thing is, well, they're both using each other. And she does, again, quote some some lines and point to some scenes where you can interpret it as Soji is just as invested in using him as he is invested in using her. And they're both, like, aware of that. And that's, like, a limitation on their relationship. But I don't think that that's true. You know, like... She does a couple times, like, try to pump him for information, but he always has the upper hand. Um, mm-hmm. And she's the one that keeps going to him whenever she's, like, upset and giving him more information than he needs. You know what I mean? So, like, if... Right. Yeah. So, I don't know. I just... It, but it's interesting to see how somebody else who's, like, a critical thinker can see the same series and have a completely different interpretation of what they're seeing. Yeah. I agree with everything that you said. You know, I... You know, I never really thought of it as, like, a romantic relationship. I always thought of it from the perspective of, like, he's doing his job. He's, you know, using her to try to figure out how to get the information that he needs about the location of the rest of the androids. She always kind of went back and forth about, like, am I into you? Am I not into you? Um, but you're right. Like when she needed something, she would go to him like emotionally, you know, right, when she's right. having like all of these dreams, it's like, well, I'm going to go to Narek, you know? And right. Which so, like, again, again, if they're distrusting of each other, like she doesn't trust him and doesn't trust his motivations. Uh-huh. And he's like, Hey, you know, have you considered the fact that you might be a fancy robot? You know, when you decide, like, hmm, maybe I am a fancy robot. Perhaps I should go tell the Romulan spy whose culture hates robots. I don't know. I know. I agree with you. It's interesting to see other people's perspectives. I I think that that is an example of somebody who's, like, selling what the show is telling you it's about, but not necessarily what the show is coming across as. And I do think that part of the problem is the absolute lack of chemistry between those two actors. I, right. I really do think that was a huge problem. Someone somewhere thought that they had chemistry because they cast the two of them, but you know, and it's like, like you said, you know, they're both pretty good actors. It just, it just did not come off that way. But speaking you know, of, Eric and so, Marissa have more of a romantic vibe, honestly. Speaking of Soji always rushing to Narek, of course, she's scanning all these objects and being like, oh, they're only 37 months old. So who does she call? She calls Narek. She doesn't call her fucking mom and be like, what's up with this mom? She calls Narek. Well, how about her um, sister who then also has maybe just existed for 37 months and she doesn't know that she's, yeah. know she's dead. Uh, I guess the only way that I can kind of conceptualize this is that But no, you would think that if ever she reached a point where she was starting to doubt her humanity, that the program would want her to contact her mom because the mom would conceivably be able to guide her back into some reassurance or else like good programming would would do that. But none of these people are good programmers. Narek suggests that she try a guided meditation to try to get to the bottom of what's going on in her life. And he takes her to the special guarded meditation room, which is conveniently located on the artifact. And he tells her his true name, which is Hryon. Eh. 
Which sounds really distinctively un-Romulan. Um, most male Romulan names have these like very hard consonant sounds and they're very, very hard on the Ks. So you got Narek. Other ones that I remember are Jarek, Tomalak, Patak, Rekar, Kretak, who is a woman. But maybe these are just the names for the outsiders. Maybe their inside names are you know kinder gentler names i i think they probably didn't put a lot of thought into that and there just had to be some token that he could provide her to prove that in fact he does love her despite the fact that their relationship is lame i mean maybe it could have been like a bracelet that they only give to the one they love or something it was silly to make it a name you don't don't even like see why he would love her you know like even if he's like by the end when he leaves that room and he's clearly in turmoil over what he's done it's like why do you why are you into her right why so but anyway so he basically leads her through like a lucid version of her dream um she walks down the hallway goes into her dad's lab and her dad catches her um in this lucid version nevertheless she persisted and she sees her father and he ain't got no face (laughs) (laughs) she looks she looks behind the plants and sees a version of herself as a wooden doll in pieces and she looks up at the skylight and sees two red moons and lightning Narek is like oh you found home by the way you're not real peace out and he leaves and he leaves his little box behind so soji is trapped inside this room she can't get out and the box releases some sort of radiation that very, very slowly kills the room. This is so dumb. Plenty of time to activate, discover her super strength, and punch through the fucking floor to her escape. This is the dumbest plan. This is James Bond slow death level device dump. Yes, this is, yes. explain to me your plan before I, you know, like, it's just. I know. Uh, like, you couldn't have come up with a way to instantly deactivate her. Like, these androids are dumb. Data had an on-off switch. Right. We will find out later that there is a way to instantly deactivate these androids. <laughs> run a magnet over her. <laughs> <laughs> Picard and Hugh locate Soji's signal and run to catch up with her just as she's crashing through a ceiling. It was hit on the way. One of the Borg is like, hey, look at this. He's like really excited. <laughs> like, uh. like he is. And it's like, was it like, he like a big fucking deal in the Borg? I mean, I get that like they would know who he was because they're all connected. It's a hive mind. But like, why would they care? <laughs> you know? There are there are Borg joining and I suppose leaving the collective like frequently. Right. Yes, like why right. would it make a difference? Picard shows Soji Daj's necklace and convinces her to follow him. Hugh leads them to the Queen Cell, which is a heretofore unknown concept in Star Trek. The Queen Cell contains a spatial trajector, which is a type of long-range transporter, Naturally. which Picard is going to use to go to Nepenthe. Uh, just as they're getting the trajector online, they're ambushed by a group of Romulans who are in turn ambushed by Elnor, who has snuck onto the cube. Hugh and Elnor stay behind to cover Picard and Soji's escape. And that's where we end. So what did you think? 
<laughs> I don't have any more feelings. Um, <laughs> Dead inside. Was, just like Agnes Girati. It's to- it's fine. It's yeah. the show is fine. I mean, like. I'm really hoping for season two, like I keep saying. I'm I'm hoping for a season two that's more um that there's more depth to right. the struggles and stuff. Or at least if it's gonna be like more monster of the week, have it be more monster of the week. Like I, I am okay with there being a monster of the week Star Trek episode, but don't tease me for the first two and a half episodes and play me like it's gonna be some big political intrigue and then it's like no no it's not not at all you know the thing is i just i want a secret that's gonna blow my mind you know like there was a secret that blew my mind in season two of uh discovery like that was i was just like from like whoa whoa you know (laughs) it was so good and that's why i that's what i want from picard you know Mm -hmm. like I just I need more twists and turns and it would be nice to have characters that are a little bit more complex but I did not have anything in my notes about the Bechdel test because I don't think we got any scenes that would pass the Bechdel test the only scene that I can remember with the two women talking to each other was Raffi and her friend Emmy and they were talking about Picard yeah no there I can't think of any other conversation between two women on in this episode no there wasn't Mm, not going well not going well but we will get in our next episode uh season seven nepenthe an episode that i liken to are are you familiar with the concept of huga yes (laughs) okay so episode seven is like the huga of episodes it's like it's like your home page keep going back to it Yes, wrap yourself in a cozy blanket and put on like an alpaca sweater and make a cup of tea and sit there and watch Grandpa Riker <laughs> make you pizza. Yeah, yeah. Ten ten would still hit it. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah, <laughs> for sure. But I mean, I need less grandpa more like womanizer, rogue. <laughs> but he's married I know I just liked him in his womanizing ways yeah no that was fun I mean it, it really was fun and there there is the whole idea of the Riker consent fetish you know so okay episode six woo zooming woo! by in the bag yeah. all right <laughs> okay everybody we will talk to you hopefully in another week or two to do my personal favorite episode of season one of Star Trek Picard. So you may have to rely on Stephanie for critical analysis of that one, because I will mostly be swooning and imagining Riker cooking me pizza. (laughs) All right. Bye, everyone. Bye.